Right, so I'm uh, reading from Matthew 27 and starting at verse 45. It would help if I had my own Bible open on the place. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, here we are. Right. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those heard this, who were standing by, they said, He's calling out to Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with white vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely this was the Son of God. Many women were there watching at a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James and Josses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Thank you, Joy. Not that there was a great deal of joy in that, but it was good to at least have joy reading it, wasn't it? Quite an interesting reading, really. You've got uh, the first kind of bit of it that you think, well, that's all describing what's going on. Then you've got kind of like a, a few weird bits, it seems, in there. And you think, well, oh, let's get the Tipex bottle out. That's a bit uncomfortable. And then it goes on to uh, describe what then happens. So we're going to be unpacking that um, in a few moments' time. But Please do sit down. Well, it's uh, a little bit difficult to know um, when we've been going through uh, the, uh, this sort of journey. How, how to start, because uh, very often the start of a message, I want to try and wake you up a little bit, tell a story, a bit of a joke or whatever, but it doesn't really seem to fit, does it? So uh, I thought, well, I'll start with a couple of quotes that are to do with what we're focusing on this evening, which I thought was quite uh, helpful. The first goes uh, way back to the 5th century. Augustine said these words, he said, As they were looking on, so we too gaze on his wounds as he hangs. We see his blood 
as he dies. We see the price offered by the Redeemer touch the scars of his resurrection. He bows his head as if to kiss you. His heart is made bare open, as it were, in love to you. His arms are extended that he may embrace you. His whole body is displayed for your redemption. Ponder how great these things are. Let all this be rightly weighed in your mind, as he was once fixed to the cross in every part of his body for you. So he may now be fixed in every part of your soul. I thought that was really helpful. So also a quote from the 12th century, a little bit more up to date, although not a lot, from Abbot Rupert of Deutz, who said these words, The cross of Christ is the door to heaven, the key to paradise, the downfall of the devil, the uplifting of mankind, the consolation of our imprisonment, the prize for our freedom. A couple of great quotes to help focus our minds on what we're going to look at. We've been focusing, I think, quite a bit on the the pain, the agony, the torture, uh, and all of that sort of suffering that Jesus went through on the cross, not just in physical terms, but also spiritually. As we focus, though, on, on the Son, we can't really look at his death without an equal focus, or at least some degree of focus, on the Father. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 19 reminds us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God the Father was very much active in all that Jesus his Son went through and we can see that as we uh, go through um, what we're going to look at now uh, this evening. I've got five headings for you and for those of you who like alliteration uh, you may well like this because it all begins with a, uh, the word uh, with a letter U so I think Stephen Gillen would be very proud of me here if I was going to report this. So we're going to look at the unbelievable darkness. We're going to look at the unprecedented separation, the uncharacteristic death, the unexpected circumstances and the undeniable conviction. Did you get all that, Dane? That's what we're going to look at anyway. Firstly, we've got this unbelievable darkness from verse 45. And as I read that, I heard the words in my mind, darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. If you were in and around the music era of myself, you'll know that's a quote from Michael Jackson's Thriller. If you're not in and around my music, uh, uh, my, my musical taste and genre, then you'll think, well, what is he on about? But here we've got a complete darkness that was unlike any other. God's activity was first seen in this extraordinary darkness. One ancient writer said that this was an eclipse of the sun, but a solar eclipse does not take three hours, which is what we had here. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. Ancient documents outside of the Bible speak of this unusual darkness. Tertullian wrote in the second century to some non-believers, reminding them of the unusual darkness occurring at this time, which was recorded in their own literature. A first century historian, Thallus, who was not a Christian, wrote a history of the Eastern Mediterranean world in AD 52 and discusses the sudden darkness that covered the world at this time of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
So we've got very good reason to believe that what occurred, for whatever reason, occurred. And of course we can uh, try to work out what exactly was going on, and I dare say experts in uh, in astrology or in those kind of things would have been thinking, well, this must have been this, this, this. From a scriptural uh, perspective, darkness is always associated with God's judgment. God's judgment. So it's no surprise, really, when we think of exactly what the cross won for us, and we think about what Jesus did with regards to our sin, that there's a picture here for us that we've got maybe alluding to the judgment of God. Darkness is associated in Scripture with God's judgment, or sorrow, or misery, or mourning. When Job curses the day he was born, he says, let that day be a day of thick darkness. When Isaiah speaks of God's judgment upon Israel, he speaks about it being a a, 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 a day of darkness and great distress. When Joel speaks of the coming day of God's judgment, he speaks about the sun being turned into darkness. Amos says that the day of God's judgment upon the earth will be as to a day of darkness. Zephaniah says that the day of judgment will be a day of darkness and gloom. And when Jesus spoke of the final place of judgment to those who reject him, he says that place where they will go, he describes, will be a place of outer darkness. Darkness Judgment. Gregory Nazianzen in the 6th century, I thought, said something that was really beautiful. He said it was fitting that creation should be mourning with its creator at this time of judgment. When darkness came upon the land at the cross, it was a sign that judgment was taking place. Who was being judged? Well, it was Jesus, really. But it was Jesus being judged on our behalf. On your behalf, my behalf, the world's behalf. But Jesus was the one who was right there and then being judged, being condemned and being punished for the wrongs that we've committed. We've gone back to Isaiah 53 on numerous occasions through this series as it uh, foretells and prophesies um, in explicit detail about uh, the one who is going to come to take uh, our place. And just from verse 4, I want to read one verse this evening. Surely he was the one who took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus went through that sense of our own being judged. Unbelievable darkness was as a result of an unbelievable judgment that was all focused in, honed in, on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 46, we then get this unprecedented separation between Father and Son. As Jesus hung dying on the cross, he let out a cry that some of you will know was quoting something else of a prophetic nature from Psalm 22. Uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
There are uh, apparently about 17 messianic uh, psalms, each bearing the marks of prophecy uh, that point to a fulfilment coming in the person of Jesus. About 17 of them. This is one of those, uh, one of those quotes here. Jesus, of course, himself in Luke 22, verse 44, said that they testified that there were things that were written about him in the Psalms. This is one of those things. That the psalmist quoted, God, where are you? Why is it that you've abandoned me? And I guess, it, although we may well have used different words, a number of us would have felt that from time to time, wouldn't we? But in our own saying that, we're saying that because of what we feel at the time. It's not a factual thing. We're saying it because we feel that God has abandoned us, but he hasn't. But here, the reality is very different. Jesus, the Son of God, was abandoned at that moment of darkness on the cross by his Father. Kenneth West speaks about that word forsaken and he says it's made up of three other uh, words. And he says the total word really is that of forsaking one in a state of defeat or helplessness in the midst of hostile circumstances. That's very pertinent, isn't it, when we think about what Jesus was expressing. So to be forsaken by the Father is to taste the full impact of the Father's wrath, the judgment of mankind. But the punishment that Jesus paid was a penalty paid for my sins and yours, not for any of his own, because he didn't have any. That's why we need to be eternally grateful. But never before had the Father and Son been separated. For the first time, In his eternal existence, Jesus was completely alone. Yes, he'd been deserted by the disciples in a physical sense, but now he was totally abandoned by his Father. And the closest we can probably think of what that looks like, as I was trying to think about this in in human terms, and we're going to fall short, every illustration really falls a little bit short of the full impact of what was really going on. But if I was to say to you, imagine a mum leaving a child, their their child in preschool for the first time, and as soon as they go to turn away, that child screams the place down. Now we know as soon as mum's out of the room that the child's going to be fine and getting on playing uh, with all the other toys. But maybe some of you have been a mum and been in that place where you've then had to to walk away and you can hear that desperate crying of your child and you glance, look back, and they're they're, they're reaching out their hands. That sense of gut-wrenching that's going on. Or maybe you've had a a long, a a loving pet for say 15, 18 years and the time comes when you've got to take that pet and it's got to be put down. Something heart-wrenching, particularly if someone's living on their own and their whole family is wrapped up with that pet and what that pet means for them. And there's that pain that they feel within, isn't there? Or think of the anguish of a family when a child is removed by social services. I have to say they do that very reluctantly. Let's not believe everything we hear, that they're there to just get kids out um, uh, in a flippant um, way. But nonetheless, we can understand something of the pain, the anguish of the child. Even if the child is, um, is in a serious place and needs greater protection, 
that child usually would much rather be where family is and there's that that heart-wrenching pulling away or think about a situation where a couple have been married for say 40 years plus and then one day one or the other spouse says I'm leaving and they go and the one who's left is thinking my whole world has been built around us being together and they're, they're not there Just sharing some of those things are little human pictures that speak of anguish. And as I've shared with those, some of those would have gone over your head, maybe one or two, you'd have winced. I can feel that pain. We're getting a little bit of a taster, but only a little bit of maybe what that separation of father and son was. I get a sense of anguish, I have to say, every time I've got to take my son back to university. He's only down in Plymouth. Pains me, he's my boy. But what about, I mean, and Stephen's only been around 19 years. What about father and son? In relationship for all eternity. That sounds like a long time, doesn't it? And then at this particular moment in time, there's a separation where father turns his back on his son. Jesus said, he who has sent me has seen the Father. The Father and I are one. I never act on my own. I only do what the Father wants me to do. But now that relationship is broken. Why? On the cross, Jesus carried all the wrongs ever committed by the whole of mankind. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin. He became sin. I've probably mentioned this before, but that's probably because it hit me really hard when I first heard it, when someone was saying from the front of a church, who was the most evil man that had ever lived, and of course people were coming up with Hitler and people like that, and they said, no, you're all wrong, in actual fact it was Jesus. And of course, all, all of us as Christians were very, very prickly there, until he explained what he meant. Because the moment that Jesus was on the cross, he was taking all of the Hitler stuff and all of my stuff and yours upon himself for every person who'd ever lived. He became sin. There's no worse person, therefore, than someone who in their entire being, at that moment in time, became sin, even though they themselves were completely perfect. Try to get your head around that. Habakkuk. Chapter 1 verse 13 reminds us that God's eyes are too morally pure to look upon sin. Therefore, he cannot look upon his son. That's where he had to turn away. That sense of separation. So we've had unprecedented separation. We've then got this very uncharacteristic death. Jesus would have been crucified around about 9 o'clock in the morning, and just after 3 o'clock, he died. So when it speaks of the 6th hour until the ninth hour, that would have been about 12 noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And we then read in verse 50, that Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, and he gave up his spirit. John's Gospel records uh, Jesus saying these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John 19, verse 30. It's it's great to, to read all the other Gospel accounts when you're looking at these portions of what went on. Jesus voluntarily handed over his spirit to God. He chose the very moment he would die. Even on the cross... Jesus was in control of the situation. 
How can anybody be in control when they're nailed to a cross? Jesus was. Jesus was. We know, just like that, he could have demonstrated being God and coming down. But he actually went one step further and proved that he was by staying there, didn't he? Choosing to go through what he went through for you and for me. No one can decide at any given moment that they will die unless they commit suicide. But Jesus chose because he gave up his spirit. It wasn't the Romans or the Jews who took his life. He chose to give it up. He chose it because he loves you. And he loves you. And he loves you. And he even loves me. John chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus says, The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life, so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want, uh, when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father commanded. Amazing. John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 30, tells us that at this point Jesus cried out, It is finished. It is complete. We could have a whole session just on those words, but time doesn't permit. The full punishment for our sin had been taken. The sentence had been served, which is fantastic. The penalty paid. Nothing more for there to be done. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 24, reminds us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We've then got these unexpected circumstances from um, verse 51 onwards. And it's really helpful that Dave spoke about what he did this morning. If you weren't here this morning, get the tape in between the, the words of, of brilliance you'll hear from Dave. You'll hear... <laughs> which is just Dave being Dave. <laughs> But he unpacked about the tabernacle. And we've got here at verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split, tombs broke open. There was all hell broke loose, you could maybe say. Right in the heart, the very heart of the temple, was a room called the Holy of Holies. And Dave explained that with fantastic pictures that I've not the technical know-how that he obviously has to do that. But it was the place where God chose to live and dwell amongst his people by his spirit. It was sealed off from the public by this huge embroidered curtain. The only person permitted to enter was the high priest, and that just once a year. The curtain was a reminder to the people that they were separated from God because of their sin. And then in front of the curtain, and we saw this in a pictorial way brilliantly this morning, so thanks Dave uh, for that, was an altar on which animals were sacrificed to try to atone for people's sin. I've done wrong, oh dear, that I know means uh, punishment, life for life, needs to be blood, I'll get a dove, I'll get a lamb, that'll do, bang. And that was the picture, they were were doing uh, what God had commanded them to do, but it was all a picture of something greater to come. And we know post the cross what that was don't we in terms of Jesus it was only a temporary measure in terms of the animals because an animal can never truly and fully represent a human being Jesus became a human being in order to perfectly represent us 
And when he was sacrificed in our place uh, for the wrongs we've done, that sacrifice dealt with sins far more completely than any animal sacrifice ever could. Hebrews chapter 10, here's some verses from verse 11 onwards. Under the old covenant, the priest stood and ministered before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But Jesus, our high priest, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, once and for all time. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. He says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. It's amazing, isn't it? Fantastic. And when sins have been forgiven, there's no need to offer any more sacrifices. Isn't that good news for the likes of you and me? You know, otherwise what would we be doing? We would have come somewhere during our lives to that place of, of recognising who Jesus was, recognising our guilt before a holy God, repenting of our sin, saying sorry, trusting our life to Jesus Christ, inviting God's Spirit in, uh, giving our life to and saying, God, would you help me to follow you all the days of my life? We, we go home, we, we then have a row, we kick the cat, or we push somebody over, or we come out with something that we wish we never said, and, oh no, that means sin. Oh, quick, I now need to do some form of sacrifice because I have now sinned. No, Jesus has done it all. For that which we've done wrong, past, present and future. That is great news. In the midst of the doom and gloom of the graphics and the, uh, and the barbaric nature of what went on in terms of blood and gore, it is good news for the likes of you and me, isn't it? When the curtain was ripped apart, I believe God was saying three things. Firstly, through Jesus' death, access to God was now open. Our sins have been completely atoned for and there is nothing stopping us from coming to God. Back in Hebrews again, chapter 10, verse 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean amazing second thing I think that God was saying was that the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Was that just something that was being said by Matthew? No, he was making a very clear point, I think. From top to bottom suggests for me that this was symbolic of God from above initiating this for us below. Could have just fallen down. It could have gone from the bottom upwards. No. This was God who actually came to us. This was God who initiated the ripping of that massive curtain. And thirdly, the temple with its sacrificial and ceremonial rules and regulations was no longer leaded. That's good news, because I would have got lost in all the complexities of that if we had to do all that kind of stuff. God was no longer confined to a sealed off room in a building made by men. His presence was and is made available to everyone who accepts what Jesus did at the cross and puts their faith and trust in him. That's brilliant, isn't it? What about the earthquake? The earthquake was another sign, I believe, of God's involvement of what was happening. 
It wasn't just a freaky thing that occurred uh, and, uh, geographically. When God came to Mount Sinai in the days of Moses, his presence was announced by what? An earthquake. In fact, the whole mountain shook, if you remember, and the people were terrified. When the prophets spoke of the day of judgment, they said it will be a day marked by earthquakes. And it's also confirmed in the book of Revelation. So when we gloss over the surrounding verses uh, uh, to do with what Jesus did on the cross. All these little pointers, even if the Gospel writers didn't fully understand uh, what they were writing at the time. Matthew was writing for Jews, probably understand, understood a lot about what was laced in from from way back. But God's Spirit has put these things in as pointers for us, uh, as extra backup and proof that what was going on uh, was truly of God. More strange for me, I have to say, is that the earthquake broke the tombs of some of the believers who had died. And Dave will talk about what that means one week as to uh, what was going on there. I think that's very difficult to understand uh, what that meant, and I think we can only speculate as to what happened to them next. Have you ever thought about that? Here's these believers that had died, so you think, okay, they were trusting in the one uh, to come, that then they would one day be with the Lord Jesus in glory. That's what we would believe for ourselves and all of a sudden there they are in that whatever state they are in let's not get down a particular doctrinal line and be dogmatic and all of a sudden poof, there's you know the puff of smoke and they're there they're, what, what's going on here Jesus is still on the cross that can't be right I can't be in heaven because I can see Jesus on the cross and we've got all these people that again back to the thriller video isn't it that are roaming around what was all that about and then even if that was some sort of a, um, uh, sort of demonstration of God's power or whatever, well, what did these guys then do? And they, did they then die again or what? As I said, Dave Enright is going to speak to that in a few weeks' time. <laughs> who were these saints? They were people who believed in Jesus before the cross. We're in this place of history where we look back to the cross and we believe that Jesus died for us. There were people who looked forward to the cross and believed in the one who was to come and set them free from their sin. That would have been who these people were here. When Jesus uh, said that phrase from the cross, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? That was the, the, the phrase lifted from David. David was someone who was looking forward to what Jesus was going to do. God's Messiah was going to do. We're in a position of history over here, looking back. It's so much easier for us. Let's not get into that sort of fallacy of, oh, it was so much easier for the believers back then, or when Jesus was around, or whatever. We got it all recorded in a book, from start to finish. They didn't. These people of faith of old, thinking ahead about the one that was to come. And obviously many Jews, they're still waiting for that, aren't they? That's the sad, the sad reality. Abraham would have been one of those people that have been looking forward. Jesus said to the Jews in John chapter 8 verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. Here is one of these people who was looking forward. I don't know who the other um, people would have been here as saints, but it would have been people uh, like that um, of the faith of Abraham. 
So a load of those unexpected circumstances, there are pointers as to God's involvement that's going on. And lastly, we've then got this undeniable conviction. I think this is great. We've got both the powerful Roman soldiers and we've got the powerless women. Interesting, those two groups of people at the cross... Who were the two groups of people that were there when Jesus was brought into the world? Was it not the the rich, powerful, wise men, the Magi? And was it not the poor, criminal, ugly shepherds that were there? That incredible contrast. And when we at Christmas time speak, don't we, about that God's here for the rich and the poor, every type of person. I don't think I've ever heard anybody focus on the cross about exactly the same being true. But we've got it here. We've got it here. Those soldiers have been with Jesus from the time of his arrest. They would have probably picked up somewhere along the line about what Jesus had done or what apparently Jesus had done. Of course there were those soldiers who actually gave their lives to Jesus and maybe they'd heard some of the stories there or read it in the magazine at the time, Christianity Today or whatever. They'd seen and heard everything from that arrest. They'd seen and witnessed firsthand how Jesus responded to torture, which wouldn't have been how everybody else would have uh, responded to torture. No resentment, no protesting, no cries for revenge, He showed respect, compassion, love, and then says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they do. These soldiers must have been, at a human level, scratching their heads. If we add into that, which I think we're perfectly at liberty to do, the presence of the Holy Spirit's involvement here, what must have been going through these minds of these Roman soldiers They had to carry out their instructions, they had to do their job, they had to hang this guy from a cross. Yet they must have known, he's he's just different. He's not done anything wrong. And there there they are actually banging the nails through his hands. That must have been an incredibly difficult thing for some of them to do. Particularly the more that the Spirit of God got to work. And he did, because we know the outcome that happened here. Let's read it. When the centurion, yes we know about him from the other Gospels, but it also says in verse 54, and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened. So probably, presumably, these people that were roaming around out of the uh, the tombs, because that was some of the stuff that occurred. When they'd seen that stuff, the impact of that, along with the earthquake, what happened? They were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Obviously God's Spirit was at work, because it's impossible to come to that conclusion without the Spirit of God being there. We are only where we are as a result of the Spirit of God that's moved in our lives and brought us to that place. Which is why there's no room for us to feel all high and mighty in here as opposed to people that are right there. It's only the grace of God that's brought us uh, this far, isn't it? Truly, surely, in other words, we are absolutely, positively convinced this guy has got to be the Son of God. 
incredible. And there were then women there as well who followed Jesus. Their love of him was stronger than any fear of persecution. And yet, of course, in our day, we call and often refer to women being the weaker sex, don't we? Remember what happened when Jesus got arrested? All the disciples, off they go. But we read here that the women kind of hung around to meet to Jesus at needs, to see to his needs, verse 55. They were watching here from a distance. But at least they had the courage to be here, to be there. Often encouraged, and sadly, I have to say spiritually too, women far outshine men. And that's a shame, particularly for those of us who are, who are married and know that we've got to give an account for the home and for our wives. We need to give a lead in the home. What a contrast, though, in the people that were there watching Jesus die. Who was this for? The big powerful butch Romans that were not of Jewish origin but also those that had that kind of faith background but were poor and had nothing and no voice for women and everybody surely in between that includes me and it includes you so both in the Christmas story and in the Easter story we have the same message God's love for all so we've got one of those, uh, I was so pleased with myself with this alliteration, I do want to actually read it again. Is that alright? Because I'm not used to using words with more than eight letters in. <laughs> Unbelievable darkness. Judgment. Unprecedented separation. Father from son. Uncharacteristic death. Unexpected circumstances. And then undeniable conviction of both the soldiers and those women who'd followed. I want to close by uh, reading you a story. It's a true story, only short. And this is the story. And after I've read this story, I'd like us to just pause and see how God leads you in terms of what response you want to make. Could be what we would usually term open prayer. If you want to praise his name or God's spoken in a particular way, reflect that where you are before we sing. This is the story. An elderly man told a group of young people this story. A man took his son and a friend sailing one day. They got caught in a terrible storm and the boat capsized. The father, who was a strong swimmer, managed to grab hold of a life jacket, but he saw that both the boys were struggling to stay afloat. His own son was a committed Christian, but the friend was not. The father knew that if his own son drowned, that he would go to be with Jesus. But if his friend drowned, then potentially he would face eternal separation from God. What should he do? He chose to throw the life jacket to the friend. The son drowned, and the friend survived, as did the father. 
some of those listening began to feel uncomfortable. They could not believe that any father would allow his own son to drown and save a boy, another boy, who was not their son, in the hope just that he would become a Christian. And as voices were beginning to raise, the man who had told the story said, I can guarantee that this story that I've told you is true, because I was that father, and your pastor was my son's friend. There was silence. And he then said, and in the same way, God the Father sacrificed his son so that you could be rescued from the power and consequences of your sin. To God be the glory. Let's pray.